0: The reading this morning is from Revelation chapter 9, verses 13 to 21, and chapter 11, verses 3 to 12, and can be found on page 1240 in the Red Bibles. That's page 1240 in the Red Bibles. Revelation chapter 9, verse 13. The sixth angel sounded his trumpet, and I heard a voice coming from the four horns of the golden altar that is before God. It said to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, «Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates, and the four angels who have been kept ready for this very hour and day and month and year were released to kill a third of mankind. The number of the mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. I heard their number. The horses and riders I saw in my vision looked like this. Their breastplates were fiery red, dark blue, and yellow as sulfur. The heads of the horses resembled the heads of lions. And out of their mouths came fire, smoke, and sulfur. A third of mankind was killed by the three plagues of fire, smoke, and sulfur that came out of their mouths. The power of the horses was in their mouths and in their tails, for their tails were like snakes, having heads with which they inflict injury. The rest of mankind, who were not killed by these plagues, still did not repent of the works of their hands. They did not stop worshipping worshiping demons and idols of gold, silver, bronze, stone and wood. Idols that cannot see or hear or walk. Nor did they repent of their murders, their magic arts, their sexual immorality or their thefts. Then continuing at chapter 11, verse 3. And I will appoint my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days, clothed in sackcloth. They are the two olive trees and the two lampstands. They are before the Lord of the earth. If anyone tries to harm them, fire comes out of their mouths and devours their enemies. This is how anyone who wants to harm them must die. They have power to shut up the heavens so that it will not rain during the time that they are prophesying. And they have power to turn the waters into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they want. Now when they have finished their testimony, the beast that comes up from the abyss will attack them and overpower and kill them. Their bodies will lie in the public square of the great city, which is figuratively called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some from every people, tribe, language and nation will gaze on their bodies and refuse them burial. The inhabitants of the earth will gloat over them and will celebrate by sending each other gifts because these two prophets had tormented those who live on the earth. But after the three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them, and they stood on their feet, and terror struck those around them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, while their enemies looked on. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: Well, as we've said, these are big chapters. There's lots in them. I don't know if you've prepared by reading them in advance, but, or whether you just got a flavour through the reading. It'd be helpful to have a Bible open in front of you if you can, because we are jumping between four action-packed chapters. But why don't we open with a prayer as well, because it can feel very daunting. For me, um, what we have in front of us. Father God, we thank you for your word, even when it is hard, even when we struggle to understand what you're telling us. We pray, Father, as we come before these big passages, maybe we're feeling anxious about them or overwhelmed by them. Lord, would you bring us uh, to your feet? Help us to, as we uh, come together to your word, would you be feeding us through it? would you be drawing us closer to you through it and filling us uh, with a knowledge and a love of you and of your Son, Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, it's two weeks since we looked at the seven seals of chapters 6 and 7, and this week we have these four chapters, chapters 8 to 11, and instead of seven seals, we have, as was beautifully demonstrated for us, seven trumpets. And as we enter these chapters again, it's probably helpful just to pause and reflect um, what Revelation is, that it is apocalyptic literature. It's a particular type of literature. In chapter 9, here, verse 17 in our passage, John calls it a vision that he's having. And we need to remember that when he sees things, he says he sees something like something. Not that it is exactly that thing. So a scorpion, you know, locust monster creature, he sees something like that. That isn't exactly what he sees. We need to remember that with apocalyptic literature, what John sees isn't to be taken completely literally. And in fact, that if we were to take it completely literally, we wouldn't be reading it in the way it was meant to be read. And people have generally interpreted these chapters according to their view, therefore, of how apocalyptic literature works. And there are three general approaches that people take. People say John is either referring to the past, the present, or the future. The past, the present, or the future. You see, see, some say John was writing about his near past. Referring to specific events that happened in the first century AD. So, for example, the Roman destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, or the deaths of Peter and Paul the apostles. Some say John is writing about things that always apply to the church in the present, the here and now. Timeless things that apply equally to when he was writing, to now when we're reading, And all the way through to the end of the church in the new coming of the age. And some say John is writing about that future when Jesus will return again. And and just the immediately preceding point in time leading up to that, to the end times. And many increasingly see it as a mixture of these. So it isn't just past or just present or just future. But a mixture of two or three We're not going to try and convince you of anyone in particular here at church. Well, I'm not, whether anyone else does. But hopefully it's helpful for you to have that framework in the background as we wade deeper and deeper into Revelation over the coming weeks. But what about these chapters? What's going on here? Well, it's helpful to see for starters that there are lots of similarities between the seven trumpets and the seven seals that we saw two weeks ago. These passages follow the same pattern. The first four trumpets, like the first four seals, form their own little unit at the beginning, whilst the last three trumpets, like the last three seals, come separately. There's also an interlude between the sixth and seventh trumpet, just as there was between the sixth and the seventh seals. But there's differences here too. Things clearly intensify. Not only do we get a more vivid and and sort of intense picture of what's happening in these chapters, but we're also told by John that the numbers rise too. The amount of destruction, the number of the dead, rises from a quarter to a third and will continue to rise in future weeks. In fact, the effects of the seven seals and the seven trumpets and of the seven bowls to come is of a kind of downward spiral. It might be that John is depicting the same event happening again and again and again. But if, he's, if it is, he's, he's ratcheting, ratcheting it up each time. He might be showing us the same event from different angles but he's deliberately going making it worse and worse and worse each time it's a bit like if you've ever read the book of judges things slowly get worse there's a cycle that gets worse and worse and worse but let's get on with it now and look at what these chapters actually say and the first place to go is right near the beginning chapter 8 verses 3 to 5. the prayer of god's people these few verses are easily missed, but they're really, really important. In these verses, we see that the prayer of God's people rise up to him, like smoke from of the incense rising from a censer in the ancient temple or in a very high church. They're described as the prayers of all God's people. But the presence of the altar is a flashback to chapter 6. It's reminding us in particular of those martyrs who were underneath the altar there, if you remember. Those are the people John has particularly in mind here. So these are the prayers of God's people, particularly those who suffered and died for the faith, rising up to God. And what was it that the martyrs prayed? They prayed, how long, sovereign Lord, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth? They wanted vindication, didn't they? They had suffered and died for teaching about Jesus and they wanted God to vindicate them. And here the response is immediate, coming from the same censor which lifted up the prayers in the first place. John is signaling very strongly to us that the prayers themselves are part of the catalyst for God's judgment As the censer itself is hurled down to earth in fire. John seems to be telling us that the people's prayers help initiate. Help to bring about the judgment that the trumpets will sound. God listens to prayer. Prayer is powerful. But let's turn now to those trumpets to the first four trumpets in particular, verses verses 7 to 12 of chapter 8. And maybe you were thinking, why trumpets? Why do we have this vision of trumpets being sounded? What is it about trumpets? Is it somewhere in the Old Testament in particular? And trumpets are so common in the Old Testament that it's hard to say if, if John has a particular passage in mind in his vision when he sees these trumpets. But it could be Exodus chapter 19, where God meets his people on Mount Sinai. The description there fits well with the other images we see of thunder and lightning. And as Pete said, Exodus is a key book in these chapters. In particular, those plagues of Exodus 7 to 10, they loom large, particularly in the first and the second and the fourth trumpets. We have hail, we have water turning to blood, and darkness covering the land. The third trumpet probably doesn't mirror a plague, but it does reverse the miracle of Marah in Exodus 15, where Moses turns bitter water sweet so the people of Israel can drink. Here, the opposite is happening. In the book of Exodus, the plagues became a symbol that Yahweh, the God of Israel, God, was the true God. Greater than the Egyptian Pharaoh, most powerful man in the world. Greater than those false Egyptian gods. And a similar thing is being shown in these trumpets. Go away, fly. Uh, Shoo. Stubborn. Through the destruction of a third of the creation, he has made... In these four trumpets, God is seeking to shake people out of their faith in worldly things. To show people, as he showed the Egyptians in the book of Exodus, that those things don't have power. That he is greater than anything else people might be tempted to worship in his creation. He is the creator. He is the one who made it all. He is the one to be worshipped. God not the trees, or the rivers, or the seas, or the sun and the moon. God is the true source of it all, of life, and of all of creation. No earthly power is greater than his power. We so often think we can find our satisfaction in the things of this world. We find our sense of joy in these things, in worshipping the things of this world, living our life for things in the world, Instead of for God. But we were made to worship God and Him alone. To do otherwise is to insult Him, is to be sinful. The trumpets call on people to wake up. They tell us that to worship the things of the world is foolish, but not just foolish, it is sinful. They're a warning for us to turn and repent, to come back to God before it is too late. And here, Jesus is so important. Jesus' first coming, well, that brought in the age of repentance, the time for all of us, whoever we are, or whatever we've done, to turn away from our sin and put our trust in him. We see these first four trumpets show of we were all messed up. We've all failed to live the way God calls us to, the way God made us to live. And in Jesus, through his death on the cross, when we put our trust in him, and when we say, sorry, there is a chance to find forgiveness. We have, in fact, a hope of perfect forgiveness and a perfect relationship with our creator God again. Our trumpets tell us that this is the age. This is the time for us to turn and find repentance, to turn and find forgiveness in Jesus Throughout the New Testament, it said that just before Jesus returns again for his, the second coming, there will be the sounding of trumpets. Matthew 24, 1 Corinthians 15, 1 Thessalonians 4, always Jesus' return with trumpets. John is saying now, repent now before he comes again, before the time to put your trust in him is over. Return now, find forgiveness, repent And in the first four trumpets, God's warning comes through the destruction of a third of his creation, as we've seen. When that fails, though, to have the desired effect, it's like God ratchets up the situation, increasing the noise, as it were, of the trumpets. The trumpets getting louder to warn people, turn and repent. And we see that in the two woes that afflict the human race, trumpets five and six. So if you've got those Bibles open, turn to chapter 9, where all hell literally breaks loose. With divine permission, two demonic plagues from the pits of the abyss literally vomit out into the world to attack humanity. We don't have time to go into too great detail. Remember, this is apocalyptic literature. John sees things like such and such a thing. But the deliberate picture we get developed here in these two trumpets, these woes as they're described, is of a terrifying, overwhelming horde like a a locust swarm descending or of a great cavalry charge bearing down on humanity. The fact that the fifth trumpet doesn't kill but simply tortures people And then that verses 20 and 21 tell us that even after the death of a third of the human race, at the release of the sixth trumpet, people still don't repent. Well, it shows us that there is an underlying purpose to these two woes. There is an underlying purpose to these trumpets, which isn't just judgment and punishment. It's to lead people to repentance. Repentance. And if we follow the pattern of the seals, uh, when we saw the first four seals and the fifth and the sixth one, well, it means that these two trumpets aren't here for believers. Those who've already repented, those who've already put their faith in Jesus, are protected from these trumpets. Because the purpose of them, the purpose of these horrifying demon creatures is to force people to turn people to repentance And so the point of verses 20 to 21, well, it's to stress the depth of humanity's sin. Even after all six of these trumpets, people still won't turn away from worshipping things in the world, whether that's the sun and the moon and the stars or whether it's things in the modern day that we might worship. People refuse to turn away and put their trust in Jesus. And then just before we get To the last trumpet, John throws in another interlude, a great big chunk of space in between. And we'll get on to that. But before we get there, let's fast forward to the last trumpet, the seventh trumpet, chapter 11, verses 15 to 19. So jump ahead. We've had six trumpets. We're coming on to our seventh. And just as the seven seals ended with a vision of the throne room, so the seven trumpets end in the same way. This time the people of God worship by giving God thanks. Why is it that they're thanking him? Well, what is it they say? We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, because you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations were angry, your wrath has come. The time has come for judging the dead and for awarding your servants, the prophets, and your people who revere your name. Why are they giving thanks? They're giving thanks because God is answering their prayers. He's answering those prayers of the martyrs in chapter 6. How long, Sovereign Lord, until you bring judgment? He's bringing it. From the right near the beginning of the trumpets to right at the end. We see prayer. God can and God does delight to answer the prayers of his weary and suffering people. Prayer here is part of God's plan. And prayer here is powerful. The seven trumpets open and close with it. Prayer asked, prayer answered, and prayers of thanks. Prayer is powerful, and God plans for it, for us to pray. But let's now go back to that interlude, chapters 10 through to chapter 11, verse 13. There's lots that goes on here, and we don't have time to go into detail. And there's lots of uh, discussions about what exactly is going on. We know that John eats a scroll which it turns out is both sweet and sour, which is good news if you're like me. It's my favorite. Perhaps this is John's commissioning to prophecy and witness, as it was for Ezekiel in the Old Testament, to witness to God's words, which are both sweet and bitter. Perhaps sweet and bitter because they promise both judgment and salvation. Either way, John witnesses. And the importance of witness is there in chapter 11 as well. The great city mentioned could be Jerusalem, it could be Rome, but it might well be meant to symbolize the whole unbelieving world. Who are the two witnesses? Well, they could represent the return of Moses and Elijah in the future. They could look back to Peter and Paul. Or it might simply be that the witnesses represent the church throughout the ages. Every believer in Jesus who witnesses to him. In that case, there's two of them. Because of Deuteronomy's concern that two witnesses are needed to prove that something is true. And Jesus' is called to send out his disciples two at a time, two by two. Two witnesses are needed to prove something is true. In this case, that truth of the gospel message, the truth of Jesus' words. And these two witnesses, they preach God's words. They preach especially those words of repentance symbolized by their sackcloth that they wear. And they do so for a symbolic length of time. 42 months, 1,260 days, the three and a half years of Daniel. During this time, they are safe. Only when their work is done are they finally killed, which is a cause of celebration to the world which hates their message, the message of repentance, the message of Jesus. Their resurrection and ascension, their life of faith, their life of witness, as well as their words, show that by speaking Jesus' words, by speaking Jesus' message, they're following in his footsteps. They're picking up their cross and following him. But what's most Striking of all here all of those questions. What ifs? What if is this his person? Is this this person? What's most striking of all here? Is to compare it to chapters 8 and 9? Because all of those punishments and all of those judgments in chapters 8 and 9 Well, we know they didn't change people's stubborn hearts, did they? That's what verses 20 to 21 said people did not turn from worshiping the things of the world but this does. All those millions of terrifying locust scorpions and flaming horse monsters couldn't achieve what the words and the witness and the life and the death of these two witnesses achieved to soften people's hearts and bring salvation. In chapter 14, the angel calls on people to fear God and give him glory. And that's precisely what happens here. Never underestimate the power of witnessing to the gospel, to our families, to our friends, to our neighbors, both through our words and through our lives of Christ-like, self-sacrificial love. That witness achieves what nothing else can. God uses it so powerfully. You know, our our chapters are filled, aren't they, with mighty angels that bestride the land and the sea, gigantic armies of horrifying monsters, beasts from the abyss, fire mountains falling from the sky. It, It can be easy to be overwhelmed by it all. To think that what, what can I do? What can I, the average Christian, what, am I, what, are, what can I do in the face of all that? It's easy to think of ourselves as powerless. Not just in these chapters, of course, but in the world at large. Isn't it so easy to find ourselves feeling powerless? To find ourselves feeling that everything is beyond our control. Well, last week, or two weeks ago, We were able to take comfort in knowing that in that whole situation, God was in control. We might not be in control, but God is. And when we're in Jesus, we can trust in him to have his hand on it and know that he is good. And he's still very much in control in these chapters too. But we've seen more, haven't we? We've seen that even we, humble, ordinary Christians like us, that we have a role in God's great plan too. Because the most powerful catalysts in this passage, they aren't the gigantic angels. They aren't the horrifying demon monsters. It's the prayers and the witness of Christian believers, of God's people. God uses them like you wouldn't believe. We can all use them. Prayer is powerful witnessing in our words and in our lives is powerful and each of us has that power on the tips of our tongues. Let's pray. Father God, there's so much going on in these chapters that it can be scary even to read them and we can be left feeling powerless. Lord, we see here both your concern for People to worship and serve you, to turn away from the things of the world and to come back to you through Jesus. And we see also that in Jesus we are not only completely forgiven, not only that we can trust in your sovereign good, but that you use us. Help us to see and know how powerful those little things, prayer and um, witnessing to you, are. And as we go out to uh, wherever we're going in the future, in these next. Uh, weeks and months and days of our lives, please help us to know not only that you are sovereign, but that you are with us, calling on us to pray to you and to witness to you, because you are good. And in Jesus, we have that hope. And we pray this in his name. Amen.